0: Paul Gamble, CEO of Nori, and one of my fellow co-founders is here with me. Hi, Paul. Hey, Ross. Hello. We have the distinct pleasure of having Matthew Iglesias on today, co-founder of Vox, host of the podcast The Weeds, writer, journalist, and author of One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Hey, Matt. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming on the show. We're so happy to have you.
1: I'm really glad to be here.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, this book, we have thoughts about it. We care about this issue a lot. We think it's really important. Uh, we like that you tried to thread a very unique needle on it. And we we're thinking that maybe the best way to get started is if you could run us through the basics of what you're trying to accomplish with it.
1: Okay, so the point of one billion Americans is that there should be one billion Americans. Um, (laughs) You know, and so you can say, like, why? Why one billion Americans? Yeah, basic reason, look, we have a world of sort of... uh, Growing geopolitical competition with China in particular, to an extent, India coming up there too, is because we finally have rapid population growth in some very large countries that have historically been quite poor. Um, this is mostly good. It has reduced poverty around the world, you know, it's something to celebrate. But the sort of dream of the 90s that economic growth in China would lead to liberalization and democratization and an embrace of a rule-based global order. That has totally not happened. And no American political leaders are saying, oh, that's fine. We'll just be number two. Let's submit to Chinese hegemony. Uh, But they also now talk realistically about what you're going to do about it, right? So like Obama said, well, we need to win the future with, um, I don't know what, it was like some grant for people to get technical education at community college. But, you know, like, it's a fine idea. We should do that. But it's ridiculous compared to the scale of the problem. Trump was, like, maybe going to ban TikTok, or then now maybe he won't. And, you know, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. But taking on China's video meme apps is, like, not... It's not going to get it done, you know? So if we think about the fundamentals, it's like, you know, China is about Mexico in terms of per capita living standards, maybe Bulgaria, depending on how you look at it. Better food than Bulgaria, though, so maybe closer to Mexico in that sense. But they're this huge great power because there's 1.2 billion Chinese people. So I say let's embrace – you look historically, right? The United States, really big deal in the world. Canada, nice country, not a big deal. Why? Why? We're a big deal because we have 10 times their population. And we have 10 times their population because our leaders historically made it a priority to get people to move here. And so I think we should look going forward. We should support. Families with children. We should do more in terms of paid leave, in terms of preschool, in terms of child allowance so that people can have two to three kids per family, which is what they say they want instead of one or two, which is what they actually have right now. And we should be more open to immigration. And we should see this as the real American greatness agenda is to grow the population. We're not obviously going to triple it overnight because it, it takes time to build houses and things. But we should aim for aggressive population growth rather than settling for stagnation and national decline. And that is the book. And this is usually when people start yelling at me about climate change. So.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm going to save that um, <laughs> downstream just a little bit. I really like about this book that you state your assumptions and your values very close to up front in the book, which I find is weirdly uncommon. So I do admire that. But you chose to frame this book in geopolitical terms about uh, world leadership and competition between countries, which I associate you and and Vox as being a relatively progressive outfit. But that doesn't seem to be something that we think of. In fact, sometimes I think of The left, I almost get the sense that they wouldn't mind if the United States gave up its world hegemon status. So I don't know. How's the big reaction been to this portion of it? And how did you land there?
1: Well, so if I took and play psychiatrist, I think a lot of people on the left would be more comfortable with a world in which they themselves lived in a country that was more like Canada or New Zealand or Denmark, like like a country that just doesn't have hegemonic aspirations. They're not comfortable with that aspect of the American national project, and so they don't like to talk about it. At the same time, when you kind of bear down, are there people in America who say, well, it would be better if China was hegemonic? Would it be better if we had a global military hegemon that cared even less about human rights than the United States, that was more autocratic?" More racist. And, and like, no, right? Nobody actually thinks that. It's just also not something that progressive minded people want to embrace. And, you know, I had a professor a, a long time ago by the name of Glenn Morgan, and he wrote a really interesting book 15 years ago, and it's called The Idea of a European Superstate. And it was encouraging the European Union to become more integrated, much more integrated and have like a single European military entity, you know, and so there would be like EU aircraft carriers and an EU nuclear arsenal and European like Euro Navy SEALs. And his whole argument, you know, this is the Bush era. His argument was that like America, you know, has become this like quasi rogue state. And we can't count on the Americans anymore. So we need to do it for ourselves. And that's a super interesting argument. And if I were European, I think I would be doing takes all the time about how Professor Morgan had that right. But one way or another, like, that's not what happened, right? We got Brexit, we've had a sort of loosening of the European common border strategy. And, you know, so from the American perspective, it's like, you sort of got to take it or leave it, right? There isn't some other like nicer country that's going to come along and be hegemon. We're not going to have Iceland become the world's number one power. There's only two real contenders, and America is by far, I think, the better horse to bet on. Hmm.
0: Okay. Uh, already <laughs> anticipating angry emails. We'll see what happens with that. Okay. We'll go into the position now where um, people are going to now start yelling about climate change. We'll play that role for you here. Thank um, God. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll step into the breach and do this for you. So a lot of people that we speak with, they tend to have very strong sympathies towards degrowth economics about humans making a strategic retreat. You could even say from growth, from a consumption and living simpler lives. This is definitely more of a wizardly rather than profit approach. Uh, we develop technology we invite people in, they, immigrants start businesses, they develop technology, we're all better off, and we develop new alternatives to polluting enterprises. Is that broadly your position?
1: Yes. I mean, you know, I think there's a lot that can be said about degrowth. I tend not to spend that much of my time focusing on why it's uh, wrong, because... You know, I think in the actual politics of the United States, like the big issue is that the American government is doing like barely anything to combat climate change. And we should, in fact, be doing a lot. But I think that what happens is that because, you know, we have this tremendous gap between sort of culture and politics, right? So it feels to a lot of people that it's like, well, we've been talking about climate change for all these years, and we're not solving the problem. So obviously, the problem is borderline unsolvable. And therefore, we need degrowth somehow, and and that will solve it. But like, the truth is that what we need to do, like, it's frustrating that we're not doing it. But it's like, we need to do the things that boring, sensible people have been saying we need to do for like a bajillion years, like we need to price pollution externalities, and we need to invest money in Technologies and like it's super tedious. Like, I people like want the answer to be more exciting than that because the politics is hard, but it's just hard. And like, if we price externalities and invest in technology effectively, then we can have a prosperous, growing society that. Mitigates climate change in a responsible way. And if we don't do that stuff, like asking everyone to go live on a farm and compost or something, like wear thicker sweaters, is like, that's not a real idea. It doesn't mean anything like the country of Vietnam is not going to stop industrializing because American environmentalists would like them to.
2: Right. You know, one of the inevitable outcomes of larger scale climate change is mass migration from place to place. And we had Brian Kaplan on the show a while back to talk about his book, Open Borders. So if you want two thirds of a billion more people living in America, I'm assuming you're going to have to have more immigrants. Where do you think you might differ from uh, Kaplan's approach?
1: Well, so, I mean, I I agree with Brian about a lot of things. Um, He's an economist. I think his economic analysis of immigration is really, really good. I think he quotes me in his book and I quote him in my book. So on one level, like we're very similar. On the other hand, like Brian is a um, hardcore anti-nationalist. So I think his vision of immigration is in part about sort of dissolving the American nation In a kind of important way. Whereas I see it the opposite way that like I want to strengthen the American nation. I think that people moving here has been a source of national strength. I think that people are right to be skeptical of the idea of totally indiscriminately opening up the borders, but that like we should in fact be much more open to immigration, you know, both to make the country, I mean, primarily because like it will make America a better, stronger, greater, whatever nation.
2: Right. Isn't the population leveling off a good thing in some people's eyes? Like break that down, what you were just saying, like, why would it make us stronger? And how does having children relate to that too?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I think the most basic way that it makes you stronger, right, it makes a stronger country is market size, right? The, the United States for a long time, for about 100 years, a little bit more, has been the world's number one economy. And we've been the world's number one economy for so long that we don't think about that or what it means, right? But a lot of privileges come with that. Like, anyone, anywhere who invents anything wants to bring it to the American market. Right, it's just a fact because mm-hmm. our market is so big. Secondarily, when our government wants to regulate things, you know, if we want to say, okay, everyone has to use high efficiency uh, dishwashers, companies will complain about that because they don't want to do it. But if we tell them they have to do it, they will go do it. Right. Right. New Zealand can't just order people to change their whole manufacturing process because they want you to. Nobody cares about the New Zealand market. They'll just walk away. Right. So they've got a nice little country there with a lot of sheep and, and the occasional movie shoots there and a high standard of living. But in world terms, they have to take or leave the world as they find it. And it's been a world shaped by the United States, which is fairly benign as a world for sort of nice guy developed countries to live in. China is less of a nice guy and they are growing. And you see, they have become already the world's number one market for movie tickets. And so there was a great report in PEN America that PEN America put out in August about the consequences of this. And it means that right now, Hollywood shapes their movies according to the demands of Chinese censors, right? The PRC Mm -hmm. movie censorship office serves the role of the EPA for like, we regulate dishwashers, they regulate the content of movies. And as they get bigger, they get more influence. So right now, They tell Disney, you can't have a Tibetan character in Doctor Strange, so they change it. So the Ancient One is no longer Tibetan. It's played by Tilda Swinton, and, you know, she has no determinate ethnicity. But as it keeps going, right, as they get bigger, do they start telling Disney, well, ABC News can't cover human rights in Tibet? Do they tell NBC Universal that, you know, MSNBC, CNBC can't cover these kind of issues? And what do we say, right? These are profit seeking companies. If that's what they got to do to get in the China market, like that's what they'll do. You see it with American technology companies, right? So Apple has this big song and dance about user privacy. But there's just a huge exception for phones sold in the China market. And if the China market gets bigger and bigger and China starts telling them, look, to get access to the China market, you have to let the Chinese government snoop on everyone's data, not just for Chinese phones, but for phones sold all throughout Asia. Like, is Apple going to say no to that? This is, I think, the basic concern that you've got to have. A lot of countries get by just fine with being small, but that's because America has been the big country, right? And I think it's in our interest. It's in our interest to coordinate better with allies. I mean, there's a lot of like Council on Foreign Relations type stuff you could think about here that we're not doing. Uh, but basically, like, the fundamentals of national strength come down to population size times per capita GDP, right? So we all talk all the time about how to grow our GDP. You know, we have some ideas, but it's hard. It's hard to grow as fast as a poor country that's catching up. But we can grow our population.
2: Matt, you kind of sound like a conservative here. What gives? Very conservative.
1: I'm super duper duper right wing in this book, except that my two ideas That we should expand the welfare state to take more care of parents and children, and that we should be more open to immigrants. So those are super left-wing ideas. Mm -hmm. So, you know. So everyone loves you. (laughs) I'm beloved by all. No, look, it's been interesting. So the reason that this is a good book to purchase and read, because that's the point of all this, is that so much shit that you can buy today, it's like, it's so tedious, you know, so like the bestseller list is like 11 books about how Donald Trump is a maniac. And I think one book about how liberals are destroying the country. And everybody knows what those books say, you know, like, you don't need to read them. You don't even need to have them on the shelf. Like everybody knows you already think about Trump. It's boring. This is a book that, you know, I got some very good reviews in some right-wing publications. I got some bad reviews in some left-wing ones. I got vice versa. I got libertarians who like it, libertarians who hate it, social conservatives who like it, social conservatives who hate it. And it's because it is actually an interesting book that is not just like tedious, regurgitation of the same talking points. So people of taste and distinction from all political (laughs) persuasions love this book. And, you know, knuckle-dragging cretins from all around the spectrum think it's bad.
0: Oh, no. Ruthless. (laughs) Ruthless. Yeah, most of the thinkers I come back to time and time again are those that Uh, I find it really, any issue that breaks neatly into what I can imagine the right will say and what I imagine the left will say, I know is just going to be a boring, played out thing we've been debating for decades and I really don't want to play in it. And I love, like people like Wendell Berry or Dorothy Day that I I find very surprising. I'm just like, ooh, I don't always agree, but this is, uh, at least you're saying something new and I I respect that. And there's definitely a lot of that in this book. So if you like that, I'm going to pay you that compliment, Matt. You're also in that category of uh, poking everyone in the eye and giving everyone a hug too. (laughs)
1: Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just like, you know, it's a weird thing about being a like politics writer, like I am, which is that agents come after you every once in a while, and they're like, Oh, you should write a book. But so many of the books that I think people in my line of work, write just end up being boring. Um, and our takes are better consumed and in short form. So I wanted to write a book that was interesting, you know, so I like I wasn't writing one, and I wasn't writing one. And then I came up with this idea that I actually thought was interesting. I have a lot of ideas that I think are true and correct. But like a 200 pages for me of like, Donald Trump seems like he doesn't know what he's doing. Or, wow, (laughs) Republicans, they really like cutting taxes on rich people, but also they're kind of racist. It's like, who cares? You know, those are tweets. Those aren't books. I love Twitter. I love tweets. But, like, this is a book. It's, It's not that long of a book, but even a short book is, like... It's kind of a lot of pages. (laughs) So I, I wanted to make it interesting, you know, to put forward a proposition that I think is correct, that we should have a billion Americans, that people have a lot of questions about. And then I try to like actually go through it and be like, here's how we can change housing to accommodate them here's how we can change transportation policy to accommodate them. Here's what I think the like eco pessimists and dystopians get wrong. Here's what the cultural declinists get wrong. Here's what you ought to know about immigration economics. Here's what you ought to know about welfare state design. It's like, you know, it's it's chock full of facts and figures and, and information. Brad Plumer is a climate writer at the Times. He paid me, I thought, a great compliment the other day. He said like, Separate from the argument, I learned a lot from this book, which is good because like Brad's a super smart guy, you know he he knows a lot and it's good to write a book that people can learn from.
0: okay, one of the things that I noticed in reading this book is how much it made me appreciate cities. so I've basically always been a city dweller, either suburban, exurban, actually in the heart of various cities, and all I can see now in spending time in cities is the squalor and the noise, and I find them to be very frustrating. And I've since moved a little bit farther out of the, the core of Seattle. So it's more quiet. and I'm, I'm more okay with living in the proximity of the city. Mm. But I spend so much time on this show. Well, like talking about Wendell Berry comes up basically every episode and this sort of idealized rural existence. And I need someone to bring us back to the center of that because I think I've overdone it. So convince me that cities are actually a really important and good thing.
1: Uh, cities are great. The thing about rural living is that... I don't know. I I don't want to be too provocative here. No, I, OK, I won't be mean about it. So, OK, you have cities, right? And in the cities, we would all starve to death if not for the farmers in the countryside. You know, that's just a fact. We need those countryside people. At the same time, the people living in the countryside would all be... Dirt bore subsistence farmers, if not for cities and urban life. You know, you can have an idealized vision of the countryside, but you can also look. I mean, you can look in a lot of Asian countries to this day and see people living in huts, doing backbreaking labor 10 hours a day in rice paddies, you know, growth stunted because they have no protein. And that's the natural state of rural life, right? We elevate above that. The reason that life in rural America or rural Australia, Canada, France, wherever it might be, is actually pretty good is that we have like technologies and wealth that come out of cities and ideas and and things like that. And, And that's to say cities like in World historical terms, like agglomerations of human beings, right? Now in America, we also have a lot of very specific things about central city municipalities versus suburbs that are near them. But obviously like the whole, like the suburbs exist as part of an urban fabric and it's totally reasonable for like some people to want to live over here and some people want to live over there. You know, you want to find a neighborhood that sort of suits you. But the point is, is that like the city has to exist for all of that to make sense.
2: So I basically agree with you on that and, um, I've always lived in cities and I I tend to like cities. And whenever I think about the idea of moving to a more rural area, I get a little scared, basically scared of missing out on different cultural things and being close to the amenities that I like. But one of the frustrations I have uh, living in the city is how cities are governed. And, um, you know, before we started recording this, you were starting to uh, share an opinion about like how the Los Angeles metro system is poorly run. And, Here in Seattle, we've committed to an over $50 billion light rail system that won't even be fully operational until like almost the year 2040. And then meanwhile, compared to China, your foil in this book, who are able to build mass transit systems in like a week and a half, what are we doing wrong? How do we improve that? What are the mechanics of making cities work better for their residents?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that we are doing wrong. I mean, the point I was making, you know, when we were talking before is that, like, I think progressive minded people are aware that big cities in America are not like perfectly governed. Like, if you just kind of ask them, right, you'd be mm-hmm. like, how like, how's it going in Los Angeles? Is everything perfect? They'd be like, no, in fact, there are significant problems in Los Angeles. Not not to knock it, but just like every city is like that. And yet you can't say, oh, well, the problem here is Republicans, right? It's like, we are actually struggling to govern ourselves and achieve what it is we want to achieve. You know, I think a lot of that comes down fundamentally to, Land use questions, right? So like the LA Metro, I'm quite familiar with the saga on this. And it's really sad. Like they have spent an incredible amount of money building a subway system in Los Angeles. And, you know, of course, it's not that big of a subway system relative to the size of the city. It's totally understandable that it hasn't been enough investment to transform L.A. into, like, a true mass transit city. But it's much more extensive transit system than, like, a small European city would have. But it has almost no ridership because L.A., for starters, they run trains very infrequently. And the trains don't run frequently, they say, because they can't afford to run them frequently. But that's because fare collection is so low, because the ridership is so low. And then the ridership is so low in part because they didn't change any of the land use. They didn't say, Okay, you can build tall apartment buildings now near these train stations. And, you know, Seattle, I don't know as well, but I, I was there last year and I was taking um whatever the train is, uh, in from the airport. And, you know, you're sort of cruising south of downtown into what look like, you know, reasonably built up areas. Uh, But you'll you'll be right there by a station. And it's like parking lots, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, or one story, you know, it's kind of like strip mall style retail. And it's not Zone to say, okay, you know, you're within a quarter mile walk from this light rail station, you could just put up a like a big ass tower. Uh, And then you go into like, really, really the center of the city. And there is like some part of town where they have allowed people to put up big ass towers. And there's a bunch of cranes there. And so that everyone in Seattle is like, oh, my God, there's so much development here. And there is, in fact, more development in Seattle than there is in San Francisco, where there's like basically none. Uh, But still, a majority of the land in not in the Seattle metro area, but in the city of Seattle itself is zoned for single family detached houses. And, you know, it's fine. People like single family detached houses. When you make it illegal to build denser stuff, you get huge housing affordability problems. You get you don't have the density to support transit ridership. And so you have everybody kind of kicking around and it's like, well, I want somebody else to take the light rail. You know, like, like, not me. (laughs) I want to keep driving my car and I want parking everywhere. Uh, But that's not how cities work. Like, if you look at cities, you know, whether it's Paris or Berlin or um, Hong Kong or Singapore uh, or New York, right, that like have substantial transit ridership, they have made themselves too dense for it to be convenient to drive and park your
2: car somewhere. Where do you fall on buses versus trains? Because... Like I I used to have to commute to downtown Seattle and, um, the bus route that I took came every 15 to 30 minutes and then going home was a total nightmare. And I, I just always kept finding myself thinking like, if we, if we would just reroute some of the $50 billion that we put into this train system that won't even be usable for 20 years into just more buses with more frequent service, would that improve it? Would, would ridership go up? What does the research say on that? What's better here?
1: Um, So, you know, it's not that, like, buses are good and trains are bad or something. I do think that what's true is that when you have a city at the scale of Seattle, say, probably the best thing to do is to look at your bus network and try to make it better, right? That the sort of quality of the bus service is a limiting factor on ridership there, Investing in rail, I think, is really, really worthwhile. But the reason to do it would be to facilitate very dense development near the rail stops. And I guess, like, that's what I'm saying about LA, right? They mm-hmm. kind of wanted to, like, take LA as it exists, then come up with, spend a lot of money. Like, the voters of LA were willing to truly open their wallets to this goal. But what they wanted to do was get s- somebody else to ride the metro. Yeah. So that their life could be exactly the same, but with less traffic in it. And it it doesn't work like that, right? Like the LA Metro is this great achievement, you know, like they spent a lot of money on it. Uh, It's it's a lot of tunnels. It, It does, in fact, work. But the reason to do something like that would be to rezone to have big apartment buildings near the train stations. And then a lot of people would ride the train, but it would be a different kind of city after that right but it would be a better city after that and that that's what people should do like if they if they want to be have like green growth and you know green new deal and blah 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 blah. like the whole point of the new deal was for things to be different after it was done than they were previously a lot of progressive thought it feels like people want progress without change
2: Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. You know,
1: and like you yeah. can't have that.
2: Yeah, it, it it sounds like you're saying like like in L.A., the train system, that's the end in and of itself. But you're suggesting that like rail investment should be a means to an end of which is increasing density so that more people can live and work affordably in cities.
1: Mm hmm.
2: OK, yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I Makes mean, sense. you know, or there are some places uh, in America that are so dense. Yeah, I'm sorry, you have bus routes that have such heavy ridership in, in a few places. There's like a couple routes in New York that are like this, maybe one in San Francisco, uh, maybe one here in Washington, DC, where I live, that just upgrading them to rail would be justified, just in terms of the number of people who would do it. But in the typical American city, you know, Los Angeles, Seattle. Houston, Dallas, you're looking at big cities, there's like a lot of demand to live in them. And the purpose of building a rail network should be to reshape the urban form so that you can achieve a higher level of, you know, urbanicity, urbanicness. I don't don't know what the right right verb is. Um, But it's like people would live near the train stations, you know, like, that's what trains are for. The thing that they are good at is that the geometry of rail lines is that they move human beings more efficiently than roads do. Uh, but if you don't want that outcome, then there's no point. I mean, I, I think trains look nice, as do a lot of people, but like that's not a good reason to build them.
0: <laughs> I used to live in L.A. and to take the train sometimes, the, the red line off of Vermont. Uh-huh. And I, if I had to go downtown, I would do that or going to the valley it was fine and it, it worked okay. I've heard LA described as the United States's first postmodern city without just a clear center where there was various different types of centers depending on where you would want to go. It wasn't like downtown LA was where all commercial activity was concentrated. In fact, mm-hmm. probably quite the opposite. So how do you build in, in an environment like that? Does that model really make sense for it in the same kind of way as it might with Manhattan?
1: Well so I mean I think it does right so you uh, take LA right and if you just posit massive upzoning of all of the metro stations right then that starts to create a thing where more people are living near those stations, sometimes because they want to ride the train. But honestly, maybe, maybe they have no desire to ride the train. It's just that houses are really expensive everywhere in California. So if you build giant apartment buildings, like anywhere in Los Angeles, some people will live in them. So now all of a sudden, you have a lot of people and they're living near metro stations. And now companies are thinking about where to locate office buildings. And Commute patterns matter, right? But the metro network converges on downtown Los Angeles, just like things do in classic cities. So once you have a bunch of people who are living near metro stations, then if you put your office downtown, that becomes a convenient way for a lot of people to get to you. Whereas if you have it in, you know, wherever else, Culver City, it's maybe not as good. So it becomes a reason to have a sort of more centralized kind of thing. You know, I would also say that, Americans sometimes think that, like, Los Angeles and New York are the only cities in the world. So if New York is very, like, centralized, and then LA isn't, it's like, well, LA is super weird. But there's a lot of multi-centered cities in the world, right? Um, Paris doesn't have a hyper-focused downtown. Uh, Berlin has sort of several distinct city centers because of the unique history that it's had over the years. Um, So it's fairly normal for cities to be a little bit less Like Manhattan is an island. Like New York is actually a little bit of the weird city more than LA is. Uh, But LA is a, you know, it's built around freeways. Uh, But that's because like they built these freeways and then they built the city around it. Now they built all these rail lines and you have to let the city build around them. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to take a little bit of
0: a different direction here, Matt. We listened to your podcast with Tyler Cowan. If you're listening and you haven't heard conversations with Tyler, often quite a good way to spend your time listening to a podcast. It's a good show. But you had some interesting comment about how centralizing in order to decentralize. So I think I speak for Paul and I here. I think we both like subsidiarity. We want institutions to be as small and as local as it actually makes sense to with the scale. Obviously, if it just doesn't make sense for something to be small scale, and it needs to be larger in order to function properly, I'm not ideological about it, or I try not to be at least. -hmm. But do you think a more populous country would make federalism in this sort of 50 different states experimenting work better and actually make that a more functional way to govern?
1: Well, I I think the book does not get into this. Yeah, I think you say it's a whole separate book or something like that. (laughs) Of detail. (laughs) But like people should ask themselves why American federalism is so crappy because it's like a good idea right? I think you discuss a lot of different problems, and people will reach the conclusion that federalism might be useful here. And federalism really is should be useful, right? But if you look at it empirically, what happens is that the dominant player in state politics is the state legislature. Um, Even more so, you know, Congress is more powerful than the presidency. But state politics are even more tilted to the legislature. That's in part because they don't have the national security arena, which is a huge part of the president's job. It's in part because the executive branch tends to be disaggregated. So you'll have a separately elected attorney general, often an insurance commissioner, a comptroller, or a treasurer, or other things like that. So these hyper-empowered legislatures. And then you look at state legislative elections, and you see that people's voting Behavior is an almost pure function of their approval of the president of the United States. You know what I mean? So, like, people vote Republican for state legislature in Louisiana because they like Donald Trump. And that has obviously nothing to do with how good a job the legislature is doing of making policy for Louisiana. And people for governor show a lot more creativity. So Louisiana and Kentucky have Democratic governors, Massachusetts and Maryland have Republican governors, and that's because there's specific things that were happening in the states. But the governors don't actually have a lot of authority in those states. The legislatures do. And then they're often very gerrymandered on top of that. So I think that's all pretty bad, right? And if we want to have a real politics of federalism, we need to have real state Politics. And that means some mix of empowering the governor more relative to other officials, because you have real electoral competition there. And it means trying to differentiate the political party system. Like in Canada, you can have totally separate parties in your provinces than you have in national federal politics. So that people say, look, in my Quebec election, I vote based on Quebec issues. And then in my Canada election, I vote based on Canada issues. And we don't have any of that in America. And it makes federalism very, um, very weak as a sort of like effective strategy for addressing governance.
2: Yeah, I see your point there. One of my like, Biggest bugaboos is I'm just not a fan of the 17th Amendment and the idea of changing the way that senators are elected to be popularly voted upon rather than by the state legislatures. But it sounds like you're arguing against putting more power in the hands of the legislatures. But I guess just in general, you know, we've got this like major partisan, increasingly partisan times that are happening, and that doesn't seem to be slowing down. So. We've basically have a federal government that doesn't work well at all, and if if we triple the country's population, is that going to make things better or worse? Like how do we make the government more responsive to that many people
1: Well, so I put the uh cart and the horse the other way around. My claim is that our politics has become dysfunctional because in the post-Cold War environment, we have stopped really having a politics that's about improving America. Mm -hmm. And we've instead got this politics that's about pitting Americans against each other and fighting with each other, right? And it's not that having a larger population will fix that problem. It's that raising our gaze away from picking fights with each other and toward thinking about America's role in the world and how we can be the dominant great power of the next century and the century after that will naturally create a more Mm. constructive politics because, you know, so like one thing in the book is I'm talking about how we should do more, uh, you know, to support people with like daycare subsidies. And, you know, I give my view of what's the right way to do that. But I could totally imagine a conservative person putting more weight on deregulation as a solution. A left wing person might say, I say that we should give some support to stay at home parents. A left wing person might disagree with that. A cultural conservative might think it's absolutely essential. There's just like a lot you can disagree about in politics. Mm -hmm. But the premise of that disagreement would be that we agree that we should be doing something to financially support Mm -hmm. child rearing, right? Right, And then we're having a conversation about how do we do that. And then we can have, I I don't know if you guys know the book, great classic business book, uh, Getting to Yes, Mm -hmm. you know, about how to have constructive negotiations, right? Yeah. And it's like if we want to reach a solution then I think we can. I don't think the values that divide Americans are this like unbridgeable void. But they're significant. And mostly the way our politics is set up, politicians don't want to bridge the divide, right? They want to find reasons to break up and then say, ah, F you. And so, like, we can't solve any problems that way. And we're not going to. And if you're satisfied with the country just kind of going down the tubes, you know, that's fine.
2: (laughs) Uh, But it seems bad to me. We had the Cold War, and that was the unifying thing. It was like, what? fueled the space race and other types of projections of American cultural values around the world. And we've basically lost it. This is like the, uh, the, the, Fukuyama, like end of history kind of thing. Like we, mm-hmm. we've, we we have not really had anything like that to unify us since 1990 or so. And it sounds like your argument is, well, this is a thing that we can all aspire to. And so if we can agree on the ends, then we can start debating the means, which is where actual policy discussions take place.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And if you if you read um, Fukuyama's book, which people sometimes dunk on right. without having read, his last chapter is actually quite pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not saying this is going to be great. He's actually predicting that we're going to have very divisive politics dominated by demagogues and nonsense, which I think is more or less what has happened. And as everybody says, like history is not in fact over, we have a bunch of big challenges. And, you know, something that I think is interesting about the Cold War is it wasn't just well, okay, we did the space program to stick it to the Soviets. But that at that time, you would not have had an advocate of the free enterprise system, stand up and say, Well, you know what, if millions of people have stagnating wages for a generation and can't get health insurance, and their children are living in poverty, that's just the market for you, right? Because that would sound like a pitch for communism, Mm -hmm. right? People believed it, people who believed in capitalism wanted to make the system work, Mm -hmm. right? They undertook an obligation to not just say that, like, in theory, this would be better, but that, like, actually, it had to be better right we We accepted that challenge, and we sort of don't have that now, right? There's no sense that America needs to live up to its values or that America needs to deliver for its people and I think that that time, that moment of innocence is sort of slipping away, and it's time to start thinking about what do we plan to do in this world.
0: Okay, I'm fairly sympathetic though the idea that one billion Americans could be a similar rallying call that we can all unify around, like the space race. I mean, it just seems like we let more people in and we have more children. That's not like a defeat communism, go to the moon, plant an American flag. It, it seems be, uh, be number more,
1: one forever.
0: Being number one, okay, yeah, <laughs> being number one forever. There we go. Okay, yeah, that's uh, that's controversial in its own way. But if I'm gonna live in a country, I I probably would want it to be the world leader. I don't know. I'm not nearly as embarrassed about that as I should be. But you're saying that- <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm saying you should own it. It's like, I think one of the weirdest things yeah. in American politics today is like, nobody is like, "eh, who cares? Number one, number two, everybody says everyone's speech is like, this is the greatest country on earth. But then you look at these IMF projections. It's like, well, in purchasing power parity terms, we're already number two. In exchange rate terms, we're still number one. But everyone thinks China's exchange rate is fake. So maybe we'll still be number one for like five or six more years. And so like, is that Joe Biden's platform? He's going to be like the last president for whom America was the, the number one economy in the world? That, that sounds really bad, actually, when you state it that way. So what are we going to do about it? Right? Like I say, grow the population.
2: Ross, I was going to say, like, I mean, when I visit like other westernized countries that have like, you know, roughly similar cultural values to what we have here in the US and there. And if I go to a, a store, a grocery store, or I turn on the TV or or whatever, everything that I'm seeing are cultural exports from the United States. And I can imagine... Uh, being a citizen of one of those countries and just being like a little bit annoyed and jealous and envious that everything like runs through America.
0: Dude, you have so, no so, idea, Paul, how many times people will say like, "Oh, Ross from Friends," and I'm like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not even like,
2: I'm <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> some random country I've been to all the time." Yeah. Right. So that to me seems like a good reason. Like, I mean, I I agree with Matt's objective here. I like being in the country that is the cultural exporter, because that means that when I participate in the culture, I'm participating in the thing that ultimately affects much more around the world than if I were just a Kiwi in New Zealand and my only export is Flight of the Conchords.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. And what we do in the shadows and Lord of the Rings. (laughs)
1: Don't Lord rip, don't of the Rings. No, I, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, look, I, it says something. Look, everybody knows, right? If you grew up in New Zealand and you're smart and you're ambitious and you know you do really well in high school and whatever, and you want to like make it in the world, you know, you gotta end up moving to London or New York or San Francisco or something like that. It's not, it's not going to happen in Auckland, right? And that's an important part of the American. Identity, I think, that like we are this great hub of stuff, right? Cultural stuff, technical innovation. We've got all kinds of problems. Obviously, everybody knows all about that. But we also have the opportunity for a level of greatness that does not exist elsewhere, right? And like maybe closer to the main theme of you guys' show, right? It's like, I have no idea where the person who invents. A amazing way to like suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere will be born like it could be anywhere, but I have a really strong odds that that company that does that stuff will be an American company. You know, like that Mm -hmm. person is going to come. Now, maybe not, right? You could imagine it, China, Japan, Germany. There's like a few other plausible contenders, but they're also pretty big countries in the scheme of things. And now like it could totally be a person from Iceland or, you know, Honduras or God knows where, but they are going to migrate to a big country with big cities, a big base of investors and technically skilled people and customers and a government that can think in terms of big projects, because just like that's how – the state of the art moves forward and nothing against New Zealand or Portugal or the Czech Republic or there's lots of nice little countries out there. You know, and every once in a while, they give us something like Legos out of Denmark. But like, the big <laughs> stuff gets done by the big countries. And that's like deep in America's DNA and, and fiber. And I don't think we should like reject that and like shrink ourselves down. I think we should embrace it.
0: One of the long-running debates on this show, although we've mostly had people who think the answer is yes, and I believe you will think this as well, people listening should have kids, right? If they're like, I don't know, because of the climate, you're saying just have kids. Your your kid might solve climate change.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's that. And there's, I I mean, look, if you don't want to have kids, don't have kids, right? And if you want to come up with a high-minded reason for it, you can say climate change is the reason. I mean, that's fine. I just like, I mean, I I was a philosophy major in college and I I don't really go deep into this population ethics stuff, but it's like, everybody understands that like Thanos is the villain in the Avengers movies. (laughs) I don't know that that everyone does, but yes. Okay. Well, (laughs) I mean, I mean, who knows? I got some weird callers from like Marin County. Um, and that, that really made me wonder, but like just not having there be people, is not a solution to problems. Like it's a, you're just like, you're looking through the telescope in the wrong direction.
0: It's like, <laughs> like the, uh, <laughs> the, the Tacitus, the the Romans uh, what created a wasteland and call it peace. It's like, yeah, yeah there's no, no problem so if there's no humans, but yeah. So
1: it's like, yeah, okay. Like, I mean, if you don't want to have children, you don't want to have children. Like, that's fine. I have one kid. I'm very happy with that. I feel like two would be very stressful. But like, I'm not going to tell you that I did that for other people. You know what I mean? It just makes my life easier to have a small family. This one viewpoint that is like, well, people are the solution because you know, like, who might invent like the next great—I don't know—a solar panel that works at night or something. Uh, but it's just more than that. Is that like people are the topic? of the discussion. So to just say like, well, if we didn't have any people, then we wouldn't have the problem. Like that's weird. That's neither here nor there. And you know, like someday one of these like nutty spree killers who pop up every once in a while and just like horrifying will write in their manifesto that like they're really worried about climate change. And then conservatives are going to all go dunk on the left about <laughs> it. And that's going to be shitty and unfair, uh, but, th- but like it's shitty and unfair because like nobody actually thinks. That that just like extirpating humanity is a fix, quote unquote, to, to environmental problems. And so it's been a perverse, you know, I, I, I have gotten some reviews by people on the left who are like, oh, man, like this is really terrible on climate grounds. But none of the people on the left who say that. Seem to actually disagree with me that we should have a generous immigration policy or that we should spend money on preschool and we should have paid parental leave. So it's a little like, where's the beef here? Like, there was this old school, like, real dystopian thread in the environmental movement where they were like all tied in with population control people and anti immigration people. But they decided like 20 or 30 years ago that that was racist and bad and wrong. And they're right. But then, like, they need to own that and you can't just like opportunistically invoke climate change.
0: So we had uh, your colleague, David Roberts on once upon a time, and I don't think he would mind me saying this. I will think about it before and edit it if I need to, but got a lot of nasty notes about it because we tried so hard to be like, David, surely, surely there's something worth saving uh, right of center. This conservative idea is that have some value. There are things happening uh, with Republicans and climate. There are things to hope for. He was very nice, but gave very little ground on that point, Matt. So is there anything you'd like to add as an addendum to David's visit?
1: So look, I mean, on one level, I think I agree with his perspective, which is that the institutional Republican Party is not just sitting there waiting for a more reasonable climate proposal, and then they'll say, hey, yeah, like, let's do a bipartisan climate bill. Like, the reason they don't want to do that is more fundamental. That being said, like, I think, I mean, again, I, I look at Los Angeles, I look at New York City, you know, like, you look at places where Republicans are not a factor. And you ask yourself, like, are these guys doing what it really takes to address climate change. And they're not, you know, they're tied up in nimbyism, and like degrowth stuff, and not really contributing in a meaningful way. And it just goes to show that like, the problem is bigger and more complex than the Republicans are bad, right? What I think is true is that so, say in 2016, Republicans had lost the election and lost control of the Senate, and Democrats had filled Scalia's seat with Merrick Garland, and then Kennedy had gotten bored. And, you know, say like the past four years had gone really differently. That might have made Republican Party elites really sad about losing And they would have said, man, we should stop losing elections. It seems like our climate denialism is really unpopular. So maybe we should come to the table with some climate solutions. And there's plenty of right of center people who have reasonable climate solution ideas. Just like waiting there for Republicans to say they want them, right? Uh, They don't want them is the problem. And so if you beat them badly and make them sad... They might go use those solutions, you know, just like anybody else. Right. So it's like when Democrats lost enough elections in a row, they decided they were tired of everybody thinking they had no ideas on crime. And so they came up with some ideas. Right. Like if Republicans lose, they'll come up with ideas on the environment. They're smart people. They're not evil people, even. It's just that like right now they think their current posture is a winning strategy. You know, so I say climate change. They say, oh, you want to ban hamburgers. So I don't know, like, that's, that's dumb. That's a juvenile approach to politics. But that's where we're at right now. But the solution isn't that there's going to be some utopia, like, conservative politics, right, is basically, you have the interests of businessmen, and you have the sort of Sociocultural majority saying it likes its way of doing things. And that is the most natural form of politics in the world, right? Like everywhere on the planet, there is conservative politics for that reason. What exactly its content is changes all the time. So it's like conservatism will always be with us. And if you have solutions, like in Germany, they have some good climate policies, because the conservative party like wanted to do them. And that's how things happen. It's like leftists, it's like, you know, we say things and we have ideas and we might win elections sometimes. But like things happen because conservatives get on board.
2: No I actually agree with that I, I think it is fair to say that in general, politicians are opportunistic. they seek out power above all else, and that if there were a complete and total drubbing of the Republican party in 2016, I do think that there is potentially some truth to the idea that maybe they would start adopting positions that were more popular among the electorate that does not currently support Republicans. i I think that's I think that's fair and legitimate. yeah i, I don't I don't have much to disagree with there. I will also second that there are lots of people who are trying to engage with conservatives and Republicans on issues of climate change. I mean, Benji Backer has been on the show multiple times now. Uh, talking about that and their bobbying um, list as well. There, there are plenty of groups like that. So I think it's just a matter of time before eventually these things become so widespread. I mean, like culturally, and I thought you distinguished between these things pretty well earlier, Matt, that culturally, like climate change is an issue that everyone is aware of more and more people are in support of doing something about and it's just politics that is lagging behind and there's no way that that doesn't catch up so i think we can be optimistic about that for the future it's just a matter of how do we make that happen as quickly as possible
1: yeah and i mean the problem with climate change unfortunately is that the timeline on which really bad things start (laughs) happening is just pretty aggressive You know, I mean, so, you know, so it's like Obama, like to quote Martin Luther King about how the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the 1880s, like, reconstruction is completely undone. And then it takes 80 years after that to get to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And of course, that's not like the end of racism or or racial problems, but it's a huge step forward. Mm -hmm. But that 80 year timeline that's awful you know for the yeah. people who lived under jim crow for two and three generations right. and the good news is that we can now like big picture it and say like well we'll look back from the year 2374 and say like eh, maybe that wasn't so long but if you know irreparable harms are already underway so it's like natural for activists to just be impatient and I never want to tell anyone to like, hey, calm down. You know, the problem's not so bad. At the same time, like, the political process is what it is. And if, say, 2016, because it seems like three presidential election losses in a row is kind of like a magic number, at which point a political party starts mm-hmm. seriously rethinking things. But it's not like, you know, on the one hand, like, I'm optimistic. It's not like no right of center people have good ideas on climate change, or that it's impossible to imagine a conservative movement that embraces meaningful climate action. It's just like, it's not going to happen, like, just for no reason, or because I write like a really good take about bipartisan solutions it's like there has to be an electoral event that makes the people who are leaders in that movement say you know the like gun nuts and the anti-abortion fanatics and like they need to say man i don't want to lose elections over this like right. Coal mining nonsense. (laughs) Like who cares? And that's how coalition politics works, right? Like people get thrown under the bus. Um, the people who didn't want to see like gay couples get married, like who knows what happened to them, right? Like (laughs) Republicans put them in the deep freezer someplace because that became an embarrassing issue.
2: It's sort of counterintuitive to think, but like, I mean, if, if you are a conservative or Republican and, and you don't like the green new deal, then you have to engage on the issue because if, if you're not even participating in that conversation, then there's no bulwark against that. And it's just going to be continued, like one sided policy discussion.
1: Right. I mean, and I would love to see a more pro growth, technology focused, but serious, not like, oh, we'll solve it with technology so we don't need to do this regulation, mm-hmm. but like, here's my 300 billion huge moonshot techno utopia, like do something, you know, like something big. And then we can have a debate about that. But right now it's like, well, you have a couple big ideas rolling through environmental circles and then you've got, you know, I don't know what, you know, you've got like, let's pretend that windmills are going to make birds extinct and you know, that's that's dumb. There's just like a lot of dumb stuff in politics.
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean, government is really good at some things and it's really bad at doing other things. And I think we would all benefit if there were more diversified voices discussing like how to actually achieve these goals. Like I, I would so much rather have the government spend its resources investing in research and development of technologies and grant programs for things like converting to regenerative agriculture or whatever. I would rather not see the government create create a jobs, like a make work program that's intended to solve like some social problem at the same time as curing environmentalism. And that's just like not a discussion that anyone is open to having right now. But it sounds like you are. And I wish more people were like that.
1: So electoral politics, right, is zero sum. Like only one person can be president. Only one person can win a House seat. But policy is positive sub. You know what I mean? Like if you Mm -hmm. if you have a serious conversation where one person says my top priority is to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and somebody else says my top priority is to have a vibrant farm economy. Like there are ways to reconcile those two things if people state their top priorities and then they want to reconcile them. And that's true for like any two priorities. Right. It's like human beings are smart and we can make win win deals on pretty much any topic. But you have to want to make a deal, right? You have to accept the premise that we should be doing something on the climate front rather than using the issue opportunistically to win votes. And we just haven't been there. You know what I mean? Like we haven't been in a place where elected officials But I I mean, on climate, elected officials on the right in particular have not wanted to reach a deal. They've just construed a deal on a climate bill would be a win for the left. Right.
0: That was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming out and hanging with us, Matt.
1: Thank you. And
0: uh, yeah, one one last question. I'll make it a short one, though. What are the odds that we get to one billion Americans this century?
1: I don't know. The odds are against it, but I don't think it's wildly implausible. Uh, We would need to achieve something like Canada's population growth rate. So, you know, if enough people buy the book, politicians are going to be like, hey... I guess we want a billion Americans. I guess I should read it, you know, and then we'll get it done. So it's really on you, the podcast listening audience, to decide whether or not it happens. I can't predict my own sales.
0: Wow, you are a professional. <laughs> that was so skillfully executed. Where should someone buy this if they want to support what you're up to?
1: Well, I mean, it depends. You know, if you are a sort of neo pastoralist, uh, you should buy it (laughs) uh, at your local independent bookstore. Uh, You can go to bookshop.com and and order it from them. And that's great. We love independent bookstores in the book game. On the other hand, you know, if you are a techno modernist, you might think an ebook is a lot more environmentally friendly. And we're available in the Google Play Store, Amazon Kindle, uh, whatever Apple's bookstore is called. I think just Apple Books. Uh, So it's everywhere. Also, audiobook. If you just love my voice so much, I actually read the audiobook script so you can hear me ramble even more on audible and other platforms so there's really a lot of great ways to buy this book there's no wrong way to do it <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay link link is in the show notes oh go ahead paul what was that
2: <laughs> i was just say i can vouch for the audiobook i listened to it in one go uh while i was driving home from california a couple weeks ago so there you go yeah it's a good listen there's
1: also a uh, factual error about the population of detroit in the text, which is corrected in the audio book. So, oh,
2: excellent. Real-time updates. You, you can get less fake
1: news about yeah. the population of Detroit <laughs> by, reading the, by by consuming it in audio.
0: Great, great. Well, thanks again, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for all for being on this one. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It is these days. The reviewing really helps. helps get this content out to more people. Thanks so much for listening. Tell your friends, and we appreciate it.